Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And I'm Jonathan Oxier. <laughs> and, and welcome to part two of the Secrets of Story podcast. So in the episode we just recorded, which we are releasing as episode 29, we talked about how everything you write should ideally have an author draft, an artifact draft, and an audience draft. First draft where you're writing what you want to write, the second draft where you're trying to perfect the thing in and of itself, and then a third draft where you're trying to keep in mind what the audience wants. Which led us to this major tangent, which we realized is also a great episode in and of itself about genre. So let's talk about genre. So so let me pivot this, because weirdly this takes me to genre. When I think of those three polls and I go, well, what happens if someone cuts that entire first stage out? Which is basically what happens when someone jumps straight to, say, the craft book or jumps straight even to the, the teaching I sometimes uh, lean toward, you know, when working with students. And there's none of that, none of the James in it, right? <laughs> the Kennedy uh, sort of passion. And, and in my own writing, I have that. I'm, I'm extremely focused on, on my own personal desires and need, needs to communicate in the first draft, but I'm not teaching that stuff. So let's say someone just scooped up the stuff that I teach in my classes, the stuff you, Matt, talk about in your book, and you get this thing that has none of that personal expression. And that was what made me think about, I spend a lot of time thinking about genre and the fact that this word is so terrible because it's not specific enough. You know, we talk about, you know, children's books as a genre. Really, I would argue that's a medium um, because it's so distinctly different from other types of fiction. But more to the point, we have we have the pejorative version of genre, and then we have just genre meaning like, you know, the setting, basically, or, or something. And and I'm a real fuddy-duddy. I actually cling to the idea that there exists a, a pejorative identity of genre. And we're in a moment in time where we're celebrating all genres, and, it's, and we're like breaking down the walls and like no distinction between low art and high art. But I look at a lot of storytelling out there, and I'm like, that stuff all sucks. It is not making us better. It is not helping us live more deeply in our humanity. It, it's, 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 you know, I, I think there's bad stuff out there and we also have the word genre for it, but I want to figure out the difference between that, that crappy stuff and the good stuff that happens to have so many of the same traits. The, the idea of genre that I'm really sitting on, because I've, I've for a couple of years now, I've had this sinking feeling that genre is not really something people are talking about very well. One of the only people I think that talks about it pretty well is you, Matt. Um, you know, I, I cling to little nuggets that, that you have. You know, at one point you talked about thrillers and you just made a blanket statement uh, that is like, ah, it can't possibly be true. And you're like, thrillers are about transgression. Mm-hmm. And then when I started reading thrillers, when I started dealing with manuscripts, you know, people were sending me stuff to, to you know, give comments on, I realized like I would find myself repeating that statement and quoting you all the time because I think you had tapped into something really essential, but it's not the way we talk about genre. We, we kind of try to shoehorn it into general, you know, three act structure type conversations or hero's journey type conversations. And I think genre is hugely important and to understand genre is hugely important, but I, I, I haven't found a lot of people who actually have really spent the time getting into it. Now, one of the people, so I, I've been doing a little bit of thinking on this on my own. You know, I also went back and reread, I searched genre on your blog and I'm like, oh, well, Matt's covered a lot of really good ground on this. Um, but I have kind of one big idea and then one metaphor that has been very helpful for me to start to think differently about genre. It's really just basically a doorway that's opened that I feel like I can pass through and I'm, I'm very... Uh, I have a sense that there's really good stuff on the other side. 
Okay. So the, the, the idea that feels new to me, again, Matt, given your blog, your own thinking, James, maybe it's not new to you guys, but basically is the idea that the mistake we make in genre is we frame it within, say, craft conversations or conversations about how an artist, a storyteller kind of builds a story. But genre is actually the language of user experience or, or sorry, audience experience. And when you talk about genre, you're not talking about story structure or any of the traditional craft things. And you're also not talking about artistic expression. The valuable conversation to be had about genre is entirely radically oriented around audience experience. And the metaphor that I found really helpful. And part of the reason I emailed you guys is because I kept talking to my wife about this metaphor and she sat through it for like an hour. And at some point she's like, I don't want to talk about freaking hamburgers anymore. The metaphor I use is you go to a fancy restaurant, you know, one of these, whatever gastropubby things where, you know, every single object has, it's a familiar thing with a twist. Are we going to start using that term in America? I thought gastropub never really jumped the pond. We did. It did. It, people began using it in 2012 and stopped using it in about 2019. That uh, sounds about right. So I had children in 2012, which means I haven't actually been able to eat in a restaurant <laughs> since then. I didn't realize we'd move past it, but that wouldn't surprise me. Or is it? Or or are you saying it because you're Canadian? You also say process. I should point I out. So. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you, if you get if you get enough drinks and meals, say schedule um, <laughs> uh, or pasta. But so so you're at this restaurant, gastropub, whatever. You know, just a, a nice, cool restaurant where they're doing innovative things with the menu, and you know it's this cool restaurant. But you open a menu, and there's a thing on there called a hamburger, and you order a hamburger, and that chef, however genius they are, they can do all sorts of stuff. But there's a fundamental thing you are expecting when you get a hamburger. And if it violates some of those core things, it doesn't matter. You know, so an easy example is you do a hamburger and it looks exactly like a hamburger and it's got the fries. It has all the things, you know, it's nicely plated, feels very hamburgery and you bite in. And if that's Italian sausage, no matter, even if it's the best Italian sausage you've ever tasted in your life, you are going to feel disappointed because yeah. there was a promise in the hamburger and, and hamburgers are great. This is the reason I tried to talk to my wife about this for an hour, because I actually think even the, if you will, genre expectations of a hamburger are super complicated. I'm a vegetarian. I have had true mushroomy veggie burgers. There's big chunky vegetables in it and no meat in sight that still hit the, the hamburger vibe in a way that sometimes a beef hamburger could not. And like, if I go deep into what makes a hamburger a hamburger, it's sometimes surprising stuff. Sometimes you go to that same restaurant and they deliver the regular hamburger, but we've all done that thing where we buy the nice, get the nice hamburger from a restaurant and they give you a plate and on it is a perfect hamburger and nothing else. And I feel confident that every person who's ever ordered that goes, oh, well, that's not exactly what I was kind of hoping for. Yeah. And that's instructive because I'm like, okay, part of the genre of hamburger is that you need to alternate it with a thing. It could be it could be chips, it could be French fries, it could be a side salad, but the object on it, the meat and the bun, that whole operation, if it's if that's the whole meal, you actually didn't get the hamburger experience. Mm -hmm. And one of the traps of genre, and this is where we get to pejorative genre, is the safest way to guarantee the hamburgerness of the experience is to copy people exactly. 
because that fancy restaurant could use, you know, the most amazing ground veal things and, you know, beautiful handmade brioche bun and, and all of this stuff. But they could still mess it up. But Wendy's does the exact same thing as Burger King, does the exact same thing as McDonald's, does the exact same thing as Five Guys. They copy each other and they're all kind of the samey, but they guarantee that they don't screw up the genre part of it. Right. All those places are going to successfully deliver on the hamburgerness. And we are disappointed, but we're not disappointed in the way when someone wildly deviates. It's a safe choice. It's a, it's a perfect safety net to copy. And I think with storytelling, you're going, I'm going to write a thriller. I'm going to write a high fantasy story. I'm going to write a you know, big house mystery. If the truth is, and it's an uncomfortable truth, if they exactly copy everything we've ever seen, then they will not fail. Oh, but I the downside disagree is, with that. They I will think never if you exactly copy everything you've already seen. You'll certainly fail. Well, hold hold on, hold on. I, I don't agree with Jonathan yet, but let him play this out. Let him the dig only... his own grave a little more. Come on. <laughs> no, the only nuance I would add to that is I don't think they fail, but they will never succeed. They will never actually do that. But this is why, like, you think of again pejorative genre. You think of the direct-to-video horror market, right? right? Every single time, they're hitting the basic genre-ness of horror. They know what their audiences expect. They deliver that. But the problem is you get so entrenched in that safe move that you never actually break out and do something truly innovative and new. You guys a while ago were talking about Knives Out, which I think is a phenomenal movie. Knives Out, from the beginning, feels like it's breaking every single rule of a big house mystery. We have, first of all, it jumps and shows the objective reality separate in an omniscient way. Like you have a character telling a lie and then you jump straight to what actually happened, which is a pretty big violation. You're usually working this through the detective's point of view. You have a protagonist who cannot lie, which is really, really hard to work through. But the thing that makes Knives Out brilliant, truly brilliant, and this is a spoiler to anyone listening, is that... Two-thirds of the way through, we think we're seeing sort of a meta commentary where we're playing on every convention. But then there's an actual murder mystery that happens that we realize has been cooking in the background. The whole time the movie's been going, this isn't your typical murder mystery. This is a story about, you know, all of these miscommunications and people acting like they're in a murder mystery, but if this is real life. And then at the 11th hour, they slide in. I mean, it's been very neatly, beautifully woven in an actual traditional legit murder mystery yeah because like the, the first the and first... even a bit of an action movie there's like a car chase and you're like wait <laughs> what kind of movie am i watching <laughs> but like the first the first twist in the movie is that there was no murder and then you're like oh this was just you know this was a suicide this was not murder it is good but someone is worried that it will seem to be murder and will be pinned on them. So it's like, oh, this is a big twist. This is not your usual murder mystery, guys. It's not actually a murder mystery. And then you find out that happens at just about a third of the way in. And then just about two thirds of the way in, we find out, oh no, it was murder. It only appeared to be suicide. And well, that it was suicide, but it, if he hadn't committed suicide, he would have killed over dead for murder or thought he was. And I <laughs> don't ask me to actually explain the plot, but it's brilliant. And on the one hand, it says like, oh, aren't you clever and fun for throwing away your genre expectations? And isn't it fun to throw them away? And it's like, oh, but let's bring it back. And that to me is brilliant. I mean, this is arguably why, you know, a movie like Alien is brilliant as a horror movie. Because in so many ways, it doesn't function as a horror movie. But in the last 15 minutes of it, like it's been telling you over and over again, this is not a horror movie, nor is this a space movie. 
And the last 15 minutes goes hardcore as a space action movie and as a horror movie. And it's such a surprise to know they didn't forget that we were in good hands the whole time. They spent the whole time telling us, you know what, don't expect, you know, you came here for one thing, but you're going to get something a little different. And to me, it's like you go to a restaurant and it's an interesting restaurant and they got a weird menu and they're like, well, they say they have a hamburger here. I'm going to try it. And you get it and it's plated weird and there's weird ingredients in it. And then you like bite into it and you're like, oh, this is still functionally, fundamentally hitting all those hamburger notes and adding this other stuff. Well, I think people went into Alien and they knew that it was a horror movie. Um, they knew that it was going to make them scream. In space, no one can hear you scream. But then for the first hour, they got 2001 A Space Odyssey. They they got, uh, not the first 20 minutes of 2001, but like the the the, the middle hour. Minutes. Yeah, the yeah, middle hour like, of 2001. But, but in a more working class way. Like, here are some space truckers, and they're doing very everyday things. But Ridley Scott knew the expectations, people going, they knew that a horror movie was going to happen. So every minute that ticks by without a horrifying thing happening only ups the tension because they know the horror has to be even worse later on. See, um, I think they don't know that. I they, think know, they knew it. Everybody in the 70s knew that it was a horror movie. My experience, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I'm going to pretend to be in the mind of, a, of an audience member who didn't know what Alien was before they sat down. I My journey, very similar to Knives Out. I'm like, oh, they're not really giving me the thing I wanted. This is good, though. This is, this is really good. But you're still a little disappointed because you ordered a hamburger. And when it actually hits the genre stuff, and it didn't forget you, it still had your back in that regard, that to me is a a complete prioritization of like, I haven't forgotten what you signed up for. There are a lot of movies that lure you in with like, this is going to be horror. And then it ends up not doing that. Many people could have gotten an hour into alien and gone, well, there's no truth in advertising. They really sold us on horror. And I guess there's some creepy monsters, but I'm not getting any of the standard horror things that I was craving. I'm not getting the jump scares. I'm not getting the last female standing, you know, all these cheesy tropes, but they were part of the sales pitch. Yeah, and but I the, don't think people felt confident by the end that they were going to get all that stuff. Um, or, so you mean they didn't feel confident two thirds of the way in that they were going to get all that stuff? Sure, and they did. sure. I think they started to feel confident at it's the midpoint that we have. Because uh, I just watched this again last night to get ready for this. There's a, it's the midpoint at which they have the famous breakfast scene at which the alien bursts out of Kane's, uh, John Hurt's chest. And I think at that point, you're in it to win it. At that point, I think everybody's on board from that point on. And that's at the midpoint. Things still, like the monster disappears, you don't get to see the monster. Things are still weird. I mean, it's still uh, a almost immediately, weird movie. They, they, it becomes aliens. They, they get flamethrowers. They go into small enclosed spaces. There are uh, motion trackers. And and then when the alien is off screen for too long, the the robot goes crazy and he starts coughing up milk and going nuts. I mean, I would I would have a problem with and I would dismiss somebody who said got like a halfway into Alien and say, oh, this is a bad movie. They give me what I want. I was like, well, you're just a bad person. Um, <laughs> like, like um, I I, th- I think that it's it's a good movie even up to that point. Um, but the thing is, like movies in the seventies, I guess they didn't have to have somebody making a wisecrack every five minutes, and they they were comfortable sitting in silence for a while, or having something that was purely visual, or just people saying you know random you know banter that even you couldn't even hear half of it because you know it was the seventies and movies were made like that back then. 
Um, yeah, just but, a tremendous amount of silence. What I say in my book is that you have to fulfill a certain number of genre expectations and you have to break some of them. That basically it's sort of like 75-25, that you have to do 75% of what your audience expects and you have to not do 25% of what they expect. And they won't be happy if you do 100% of what they expect and they won't be happy if you do less than 75% of what they expect. So the only thing I would add to that, and this is where like, to me, the hamburger metaphor like keeps on giving and giving and it's probably only valuable for me, is I actually think you have to do 100% of what they expect but I think we are often wrong about what's essential to the experience. You could be, again, going back to hamburger, you could be forgiven for thinking that a hamburger must contain ground beef. But I have had many fully rewarding hamburger experiences with things that weren't ground beef in the middle of that bun. But for me, having a second thing on the plate that I alternate bites with, that's not negotiable for the hamburger. And I suspect I'm not alone in that. But that's, to me, it's less to the point that you keep 75, chuck 25 and add, you know, 25% new stuff. It's more, a lot of the stuff that we associate with a genre is noise. And there's a deeper core to what the genre really demands that is not at all negotiable. This is why I loved Matt, the simple statement, a thriller is about transgression, right? Yeah. Well, That's not, I mean, that can never be part of the 25% you chuck. Well, in Alien, in particular, it's about transgression because it's about transgressing the kind of like the boundary between the alien's body and the human body. We like we start in a ship in which everything seems kind of technological and the humans seem alienated from it. And we go into an alien ship in which like the technology seems biological, like these rows of bones and ribbed glistening tubes. Like even like when we see the space jockey in like the alien ship, it's like it's a great holy shit image, but it's also and it's this believe moment, but it's also like there's no distinguishment between the alien and the chair. And it's kind of like a, a cautionary tale to the humans. Like, where does the technology end and the humans begin? And when the chest bursts open, like and when biology acts like technology and technology looks like biology, like it's all about the violation of borders, about bodily borders. Uh, and so I think Matt is right in that sense. Uh, maybe I don't know if he's right in the sense. Of, I don't know if he'd agree in in this sense. Like, or even entering the ship, the alien ship. At first, it looks like they're entering a vagina, or just like calling the ship's computer "mother" is weird. It feels like it's transgressing a boundary. There are boundaries being transgressed all throughout this movie. Yes, and well, I mean, the very first thing we see in this movie is we think that we see two helmets. And we think that they're communicating with each other. We think there's people in them. And then we gradually realize, oh, these are empty helmets that everybody is asleep on the ship. And they've got the computer is turning out messages, but they're turning it out to empty helmets. Well, well um, I mean, we, we, see the, we see the computer turn on. We see it projecting onto the helmet. But we don't believe that there's anybody in that helmet. I mean, I just watched this last night. Like, it's, like it's clear that it's just a helmet that's sitting on a chair uh, on a, a cabinet but it is weird i agree with you there's empty helmets watching the computer and not humans and yeah. that is alienating no but i think your larger point about how you've got this basic idea of transgression you've got this basic idea of bodies entering into bodies of technology entering into bodies bodies entering into technology and you it and it's on so many levels and it just on the one level it's so well thought out and on the other level it doesn't feel thought out at all because it just feels like organic everything feels like literally organic that you've got the whole movie is about machinery becoming organic and organism becoming machine-like and 
it all feels like the well, it has a theme, fan. you know, it has a theme. It, it, it actually thought this shit out, you know, like it, it's not unthought out. Like it, 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 I'm sure like Giger and Rid- Ridley Scott thought about this in a way that they didn't for like Alien Covenant or whatever. Right. But I mean, it's very much a movie that comes from the subconscious. This yeah. is a movie that is not, you know, it it's doesn't primal. feel like a, doesn't feel like a movie that comes from the conscious thought process it feels like it's a movie that comes from the subconscious urges subconscious deep well of imagery that is not not something that is clever it doesn't feel clever one of the things about the alien is great is that it's very gothic and like you don't expect if, if you somebody who's seen 2001 you don't expect to see breeze or a rain in a ship you know but there's like breeze that is like fluttering pages inside this ship there's like when a Harry Dean Stanton goes right before he gets killed, it's weirdly raining inside the ship and he takes off his hat and he's kind of enjoying the rain right before he gets killed. And it's like, it, that's another weird, like kind of violation of a boundary. You know, it's not an antiseptic closed off capsule, like say 2001. And these Gothic effects upset our ideas of what should happen in a spaceship. And so it, it just goes back to the whole theme of, biological things acting like machines, mechanical things acting like biological artifacts. It's threaded all the way through, even up until the very end in which Ripley does not realize that the alien is hidden in the machinery of her ship when she is literally right next to it and going beep, beep, boop, boop, and turning on the escape capsule. And the alien's head is right there. Of course, and the company that they all work for is treating all the people on the crew like they're interchangeable parts of the machine, like the crew is expendable. You, you know, because they just want to get the alien back to Earth. It, it's very much gothic. It's very much in a tradition of gothic. It, it, it's Lovecraftian. It, right. And it, But I think if somebody said, I'm going to write a Lovecraftian thing, they'd write something shitty. Like, this came oh, from a, a deeper was what Lovecraft did. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that he is one of those weird prophets that will never enter the promised land. But there's something about this movie that is so unsettling. It's because it's a theme is in every single scene. And I wonder, Matt, if you're right, if they couldn't have totally meant it every step of the way. Because you read a lot, you see a lot of other Ridley Scott movies and they're terrible. Yeah. Oh my God, they're almost all terrible. I mean, it's funny. He made Alien and he made Blade Runner and they're so great. And then you got to wonder what happened to the guy's process because he made so many terrible movies, which sort of reached their apotheosis with Gladiator, which is just so bad. And then just when I thought, like, this guy literally can't make a good movie, he doesn't have any more good movies in him, he made The Martian, which was so great. Yeah. And because I saw The Martian and Bridge of Spies in the same week. And I saw Bridge of Spies and I'm like, forget with it. Me. Like, Spielberg with you. And I said, forget it. Spielberg can't make any more good movies. It's pointless at this point to ask someone who is in who is 70 years old to try to break free of their habits and make a good movie. And then I saw The Martian. I'm like, oh, my God, we've got another 70-year-old director who broke free of his habits and made a good movie. But in the end, The Martian will not live forever the way Alien does. The Martian is a no. procedural. Yeah, no, The Martian is not does not have the raw power of Alien. I disagree. I disagree with everything you guys have been saying about Alien because there's there's a fundamental premise that I, I would argue on the genre question that we're missing. Matt very astutely said thrillers are about transgression. I think thrillers and horror are totally different genres. I think I think Alien is a horror movie, and horror and, and some of this is drawing from an old old professor I had in graduate school who I thought had a really strong idea 
that's stuck with me for 20 years now. He defined the different, the fundamental difference between horror and thriller as the source of the evil, and that thrillers in thrillers the evil was societal, and in horror the evil was metaphysical. And I believe very firmly that that even though this is technically a biological creature, and I don't know what the core requirements of horror is, but to me the the nature of the horror here is so clearly metaphysical. It's it's overpowering, right? It, it's blood is acid and you're in outer space. You could not make something worse. And it's not a commentary, right? This isn't about like, this isn't Godzilla, right? This isn't like, oh my goodness, our nuclear bombs created the Oh my God, it totally is. It's about this company that doesn't care about its workers. Everybody in the crew is working class and there's a company who thinks they're disposable. I think this is totally a social commentary. So this is, so that's, that's the weakest part of that movie, I would argue. And more to the point, that's not what it's about. The alien exists. It's about a company that doesn't know, it's, it would be like about Amazon.com suddenly finding the Necronomicon and unleashing truly demonic horror on the world or whatever that book is supposed to do. I think it's we live about, in that. It's about a company that doesn't, that thinks things are societal problems, structural problems, logistical problems. We, we see something, we can weaponize it. And here they've encountered a thing that again, it's almost metaphysical in, in its, its evil and its malevolence and its unstoppability. And so it's it's not about the, the source of evil is not is not societal, it's not structural, it isn't about transgression. A story of transgression is about every single person taking one little step over the line. But this is the literal opposite. This is no, I mean, it, yes, it is the transgression because they broke quarantine. That's no, but they broke quarantine for good moral reasons, right? This isn't about like the you robot? know, they didn't. Transgression they didn't. is is about like getting teased in onto the dark side. One little tra- to transgress is about temptation. It's about is about a little moral compromise that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is about honest, hardworking people who follow. A, they have to follow a distress beacon at a huge personal cost to their their lives and careers. Right? They're doing they're doing honest work. They're doing the best they can. And yeah, there's a there's a robot planted there. And yeah, there's a malevolent plan from the corporation and there's greed at play but really it's about both of those things coming up against this force that none of them deserve or could see coming which is very much in line with a traditional horror story of a bunch of campers showing up at a place where someone some maniac kills them all that's a subgenre i shouldn't compare those two but to me i did not i do not feel like that movie i i feel like you're using transgression a little loosely I totally understand the slippage between the violation of bodies and things like that and all of those things. But I don't think that's really the spirit or core of transgression. So and I, this could I'm be an totally ag- siding with James on this. I think this is totally a movie about transgression being punished. And yeah, I mean, well, I think you can define the transgression either way, either that either Taoist transgresses by breaking quarantine or you could say Ripley Ash. transgresses. Well, Ash transgresses. He, right. He opens the door. Ash is the one who opens the door. Dallas is the one who demands he opens the door. Yeah. And then, or you could say that Ripley transgresses by choosing the company over her people and that this whole thing could be seen as a punishment for her doing that. She's like, you know, whatever happened to official policy, whatever happened to following the rules. And then she eventually realizes over the course of the story that, no, you shouldn't follow the rules. You shouldn't do company policy, that you should blow it the fuck up. And Except, no, 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 no. I got to stop you there. Uh-huh. It can't be about both things. It can't be. It can't be. It can't be evil horror unleashed on someone for breaking quarantine, and the hero learning you can't follow the rules if you want to survive. That's hold on, not, hold on. But I don't how, think it, how it's can it not, not be about, both of those things? It is so clearly both of those things. Those are, but because that's what I'm saying is 
that tells me that those are elements of ca dramatic cause and effect, but that's not the theme. That's not a theme emerging. That is just straight up cause and effect of competing ideals in, in good kind of quality dramatic craft work. But it's not giving us a consistent message and idea. You said it yourself. Ob observing quarantine and the steps that really takes kind of throwing protocols out the window, those are two totally diametrically opposed ideas. So I can't, you can't weave a cohesive theme out of that. But I feel that horror is about hygiene. As soon as somebody has sex, they get killed. As soon as somebody breaks a law, they get killed. Horror is about that's if, if a, some arbitrary rule gets broken, people get killed. That's a different, that's a different argument. I, I think that's not, again, which is what I'm talking about. Like, I think transgression at least to me thematically, is a different thing than what you're just talking about there. You feel that it's transgression that people are kind of, Jonathan, if I'm trying to meet you midway here or trying to understand you, you think the, the transgression you're talking about is the kind of transgression that people kind of want to deep down kind of want to do. When we talk about transgression, we're talking about something associated with temptation and, and small oh, moral compromise. Okay, so, so you agree with me with what I just said. Yes, right, yes. It, I don't think transgression is just moving, is crossing, is just a, is simply about crossing a boundary. That's technically a neutral proposition. This movie crosses boundaries. It's all about the liminal space I, and the bleeding I, of oversecting, intersecting things. But that's not a theme, right? That's not an actual, that, that's I, not. I, I guess when you say that the alien is evil, that is where I get tripped up because it's not evil. It's just a thing. It's like a yeah. Lovecraftian thing. That's so what evil is. Evil. When I think of evil, I think of like George Bush talking about like, it's evil. No, you that's know, like, a... you know, like I think it's just a thing that like the universe kind of waved its hand, and we happened to be in the way of it. There's nothing evil about that. It's just like well, the corporation they, is they, they, yeah, we're right. But it's just kind of like the the indifference of the universe is what they're up against. Evil almost like puts us at the center of the story in a kind of like you know kind of a paradise lost way. But like the love, the true Lovecraftian motion is just saying. No, these things like we the, the universe shrugs and we just our planet falls into an abyss. You're and, fixating and I, on the word evil, but the distinction I'm making is in both cases, it's about evil. It's the question of the source of the evil is whether it's societal or metaphysical, and I this guess feels being, metaphysical. Be, be, coming from like a, a Catholic school, I remember the nuns drilling into us like evil is someone intentionally causing harm. For no reason. That is know? a terrible definition. Well, no, I, I, I'm saying, but, nuns. yeah, I, I know. But what, what I'm saying is, is that it's not if you if you think of evil as just like some abstract metaphysical slab that just kind of emerges from the fog, then, then you can't think about it. But if you have a definition of it, you can kind of start to grapple with it. And I think just the aliens are not evil because they have no moral sense. So something without a moral sense, like a volcano can't be evil. And people getting caught up with, with the aliens is not is like being caught up in a volcano. Right. See, no, to me, that is the definition of metaph metaphysical evil because it's not about reasons. This is why serial killer stories are the weird case of like true crime bleeding over into horror because they don't follow the rules of basic human motivation. And that's why they're so chilling. You can't stop them. You can't talk them out of it. It's not about the fact that they were bullied at a certain age or something. This is at least how it's presented. And so it, it switches over into the space of, again, this the, the metaphysical horror. So you, want it, to, you want it to be like a slab emerging out of the fog that is just kind of like some monolith that just goes evil and you can't kind I of think like that's think what about this movie it is further. about. No, I but the, that's just about the universe shrugging, the universe like cutting its fingernails and not even thinking about you. Yeah, yeah. But our experience of it is, and well, first of all, I don't think, 
this is not a storm. This creature is undeniably malevolent, right? There is a different. I think you're. I think you're being a little disingenuous if you're, if you're comparing this to a volcano. The folly of the volcano is we didn't get out of its way, but this thing is undeniably predatory and cunning and vicious beyond even the basic biological. Do you think a, a lion is evil if it kills you? No, you just think it's a wild animal. This is a wild animal. I admire it for its purity. To me, this is a, about all sorts of versions of human folly. And one of the pieces of human folly is thinking this thing can be contained. Okay. So then we talked a little more and soon we ended up on a digression that eventually ended up coming back around where we talked about the score for Alien. If you listen to Rite of Spring by Stravinsky, oh, yeah. um, the first song of part two, The Sacrifice, you can see how it reverberates through soundtrack history. We're going to play it right now. So when C-3PO is lost on Tatooine, uh, John Williams more or less quotes Stravinsky, repetitive two notes. So Jerry Goldsmith in Alien does the same thing. He does the same two notes, and then he goes up and doesn't come down. Or he comes down in a muddled, weird way, disturbing us either by not completing the pattern or completing it in an off-kilter way. Obviously, this podcast is for people who want to write screenplays and not who want to write soundtracks. But I noticed this, and I just think it's something that we are often influenced by things that aren't in the script and things that have a history to them. And um, I think this is something odd that happens in these three movies or these two movies in the 70s based on this ballet from 1917 or whatever. And I think basically a lot of, and I think there's something similar to like this in Hulse, The Planets. There's a kind of like a hidden history of soundtrack music coming from these early 20th century moderns like Holst and Stravinsky that I'm sure other people more clever than I have noticed and talked about. But I just something I noticed and I wanted to bring to the fore if we're talking about Alien. You pointing it, I think you pointing out that the music in Alien is quoting Rite of Spring points to my point that this is not a book about structural or societal evil. Oh my God. Okay. okay, Bring that around. Let's see if we can turn that boat around in the canal. What do you mean? Well, Rite of Spring is, is, is about sort of a a pagan ritual, right? This is a, this is a counter rational thing, rational thing. So the best example I can talk about, so this is a great example. And this is, if I, if I was a person who published academic papers and if no one has done this before, I would definitely want to write a paper on Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd is a brilliant musical. And I think it, it has a major, a major choice in it that, registers to me as an audience member as a flaw. Sondheim is is sort of notorious, I feel like, for doing these major breaks between the intermissions. <laughs> right? oh, right. Whether you, you know, you like suddenly Into the Woods gets super, super dark. Suddenly Park with George jumps 100 years in the future. He really wants to flip the script. And one of the things that's really disorienting for me with Sweeney Todd, which in many regards is brilliant, 
is in the intermission, you come back and it seems like nothing has changed. But actually, the genre of the story has changed. All the characters there, the plot is still in motion. The plot points are all there. It's not a hundred-year jump like in Sunday in the Park with George or something. But fundamentally, the first act of Sweeney Todd is a Victorian morality novel in almost a Dickensian sense or Penny Dreadful sense. Maybe it's about societal evils. It's about a corrupt judge who framed a man, who sent him off to prison, who's come back. And it's about systems, right? And, and the Victorian era was all about systems of corruption. And the true source of evil was societal corruption. Mm -hmm. And then the second half turns into gothic horror. And, and when you talk about aliens, you keep on saying it's gothic, it's gothic. But the evil in gothic horror is, again, metaphysical. It's literal demons at play. I'm not talking about, you know, the, the sort of neo-gothic stuff where Sherlock Holmes style, we learned that what we thought was a ghost is really this other thing. But like true gothic horror, it's the demons show up right and they, they literally so thing, the alien is kind of like sweeney todd it's at the beginning it's the company's fault at the end it's a demon's fault yes but because it was advertised as horror mm -hmm. it satisfies because it gets us there i feel like sweeney todd is it leaves me very confused and, and and sort of dissatisfied at the end because it silently makes the pivot and all I know is that the second half does not feel like what was promised to me in the first half. The first half, again, is about these structural problems. But by the end, he becomes, Sweeney Todd himself becomes this demonic figure. And he, he encompasses and, and sort of embodies an evil that is metaphysical, that is like some that is like something not, uh, you know, the problem is not a, a broken system by the time we get to Sweeney Todd. He's this almost demonic figure of evil that couldn't be reformed and the best we can hope for is sort of a tragic end for him that and makes to sense me, to me but... and so to me again this goes back to like the hamburger like you can do whatever you want that's crazy but you have to hit the hamburgerness now every once in a while the the restaurant itself becomes its own genre like some you know i think of tarantino right by the time pulp fiction happened tarantino became his own genre and at that point when he takes on a different subgenre, we're really still looking for the Tarantino-ness of it, right? And there are restaurants like that in the world where you're like, oh, everything on this menu is going to be absolutely wild. And don't believe the word hamburger. And you know it's going to be this crazy other thing. And you can get into a restaurant like that. But again, it's about the audience experience, the expectation. Are you going to receive what you, what you signed up for? Are you going to get the thing you ordered? And so it's not about the objective reality of whatever food you order on the plate that shows up. It's about the promise made and the expectation of the person who ordered it. And that frees us up. It makes genres aren't shackles. It's all about it. What it is, is a, a to me, like a really serious warning about what promise are you making? And so it's, you can do anything you want, but if you claim, you know, a great example, I think of like Ishiguro's Buried Giant. Ishiguro is one of my favorite writers. Buried Giant's not a great book. Uh, no. I think Neil, Neil Gaiman's review of it, in, in I think it was in the New York Times, is, is a really generous but also gently, uh, very smartly critical review. And Ishiguro talked about it. like he, he wasn't interested in fantasy. And he wrote this incredibly soporific book with incredibly interesting themes. But he had no interest in actually giving us a fantasy novel. And if that book had been half the length that it was, which... His other novels are great, but they're also half the length of The Buried Giant. I think he made a huge mistake that way. This was, he demonstrated as an author, he had no interest in actually giving us fantasy. As an Ishiguro and, fan, I couldn't finish it. Yeah. 
I don't think you're alone in that. And I think that's the peril of ignoring genre. So I think it's dangerous for us to be dismissive of genre. Oh, that's the realm of hacks and the real artists use a little bit of seasoning from this stuff, but they do their own thing. I think the real artists are able to take, you know, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. It is utterly an apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic novel. It doesn't mess around with that stuff. So even though he's doing some other things that maybe are really, you know, interesting and really work, but it's fundamentally a genre novel. Handmaid's Tale fundamentally a genre novel. I did not read the Colson Whitehead zombie novel because I don't like zombies, but I'm going to guess that if it worked, it fundamentally still hit all those zombie expectations and pleasure centers. Even if he goes on and does some arty stuff within there, I think we ignore, we, if you invoke genre, I think you are obligated to really dig deep and find those essential core things. And if you ignore those, you'll get hurt. I agree 100%. I mean, it's why Blue Velvet is a better movie than Inland Empire. Because Blue Velvet is a movie that is like, okay, this is a mystery. In Inland Empire, the whole time you're like, what am I watching? What is this about? Just to interrogate Lynch a little bit. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. You hit the marks of that. And then if you want to subvert it or whatever, you had better make sure that you've kind of, kind of shown that you have the uh, right to be there in the first place. I think we've... We need to find a way to tie this in together. What were you going to say, James? Oh, um, I mean, I just had a bunch of believe, care, and invest about uh, Alien, but whatever. Uh, um, or, or just like, like even at the beginning, like when we're watching the ship slowly go overhead in Alien, it's like so clearly a call out to Star Wars of watching the Star Destroyer go very slowly overhead. And so it's like, oh, is it going to be that kind of movie? And then we go in the ship and it's kind of like, there's something disturbing of when the camera lingers too long on a room without any people in it. It's yes. this might almost be the the cheapest and yet least used trick in the book. Lynch does it all the time, but a lot of people don't. We just see this camera roving the hallways, the empty hallways of the ship, and uh, like it's unnerving, you know. And we see things moving like the drinking birds and the wind in the paper, which are both very big believe moments, but uh, just prowling around and not seeing anybody. We almost feel like we're the alien and we're kind of be, almost being promised. Oh my God, is the alien already on the ship? Are we, are we already going to have this happen? And then we're denied the alien for like another hour, but we're given this kind of roaming, hunting, prowling, feeling from the very beginning we're like looking for the people at the beginning and we finally find them when the pods open up but we already are the hunters we've already been given that kind of point of view kind of jason Voorhees kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah well certainly the movie feels very inhuman right away it feels like just a very cold movie that you know it's literally cold they're literally frozen and there and you just get the feeling that the ship itself is very cold even after they wake up one of them turns out to be a robot the computer itself is a character that this is just oh, Par- it's a Parker. movie about parker and of course there's and... the coldness of space there's the cold of space yeah but parker and uh the the, the yafakoto character and uh harry dean stanton uh parker and brett like the engineers they're very convincingly working class yeah like, there's no, a lot I... of working class banter in this movie that I think is very human. I, I suspect at the time, incredibly groundbreaking in the same way that like going back to Tarantino, like 
you know, it was a really revolutionary thing to see, you know, Jules and Vince have this long conversation in the hallway about foot massages before they go in and kill a guy. And it was like this very deeply anchored human interaction in this incredibly arch, pulpy scenario. I think that when we start getting these these employees, these these truckers or space miners or whatever they are, just talking in this very kind of ordinary, kind of blue collar way, for lack of better phrasing, I, I thought that was incredibly kind of human and and counter to what we were seeing in sort of this this very detached cold environment right. in a yeah way absolutely if, if this was like like i think you're trying to represent it matt as almost like a 2001 thing which it was truly cold and like the old the most human character was hal but like when harry dean stanton's character like estimates that like fixing something is going to take 17 hours and then parker says to the higher-ups yeah it'll take 25 hours like <laughs> right. oh my, we've all point. been there it's stuff like that <laughs> that makes us believe and it makes us feel like they like everybody on that ship is a working class and they're the working class of the working class. And one of the reasons why horror movies don't work anymore is because they're detached from the working class. And if you wonder why all the Fast and Furious movies are so popular and that there's nine of them right now, it's because they're attached to the working class. Right. And, and why was Aliens so good? Because it, it, it acknowledged and spoke like working class people do. And then why is Prometheus so bad? It's because they're a bunch of professional managerial class people in space why does the annihilation movie suck so hard it's we've talked about this before on the podcast because there are a bunch of pmcs uh, who you, you know like they're they're they don't act like salt of the earth people and so therefore we don't give a shit so as soon as a genre loses touch with the working class it starts to suck i hard disagree on that uh sweeping <laughs> statement as i think the success the enduring success of, of homer would indicate <laughs> Homer, what? 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 what are you talking about? Huh? Homer I mean, Simpson? No, you're acting like we don't absolutely oh, love. Oh, Homer, the the Greek poet guy. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the person was... that everybody talks about nowadays. You can't <laughs> you can't go on TikTok or Twitter or or, 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 or anything without talking. People talking about Homer all the time. All right, guys. All right, well, guys. So I would be remiss if I didn't say that a lot of these big new for me ideas about genre are things that you Matt have been kicking around for a long long time when I look back on your blog when I look through your book you've been on top of this for ages you know you talk about how genre is how it feels right which means it's not about characters or plot mechanics or setting or any of that stuff it's about the actual again audience experience the sort of emotional impact of that the audience is going through um and then also you know I love my hamburger metaphor I get a lot of mileage out of it personally but you also like you you make a restaurant metaphor that's shockingly close. I um, do. So I, think- I had totally forgotten this, but yes, I talk about how it's not about promising what's on the menu; it's about promising what's not on the menu. And I talk about how I'm allergic to curry, and I need to worry about what I eat at a Indian restaurant because I'm allergic to curry. But I don't need to worry about what I eat at a Chinese restaurant because I'm certain there's not going to be any curry on the menu. And, and well, yeah. To to go further with that, we've all walked into a pizza place. And our hearts sink when we see that next to on the menu, they're also selling like euros and French fries. <laughs> and you instantly know, like, probably not a really great pizza place <laughs> because that that menu, the basically the food metaphor works shockingly well with genre because it's so much about the audience contract with the, well, in that case, the vendor, <laughs> um, but with the storyteller, right, of, of expect promises and expectations. Right. Um, and and so you, again, you were there before me. Uh, anyone who's curious about this stuff, you should just search a genre 
on Secrets of Story, and, and he's got just a wealth of posts that yeah. I think are really, really smart. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.